Blog Talk Radio. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Mike Sappho Podcast, broadcasting live from my studio apartment here in New York City. I apologize for my voice. I'm still trying to get it back from uh, the screaming and yelling from the McGregor Mayweather fight. So each year, I have a goal of reading 52 books in 52 weeks. I just finished one of the most interesting and intriguing ones I read all year. So I'm stoked to have the author on right now. Calling from Colorado, even though he's from New York City, we'll let it slide. He's the author of The Prisoner in His Palace, Saddam Hussein, His American Guards, and What History Leaves Behind. My man, Will Bardenwerper. Will, you there, brother? I'm right here. I love having military guys on. You guys are always on time. <laughs> No, it's all good. Hopefully I uh, I can make some sense here. Uh, my wife and I had our first child about three weeks ago, so I'm kind of in a sleep-deprived haze. But uh, with any luck, I can uh, make a little bit of sense to you and your listeners. Well, congratulations. I just became an uncle for the first time three weeks ago also, but it's easy for me. I just see him for like an hour, and then I go home. So, it's, <laughs> so I'm getting to sleep as much as I want. <laughs> exactly. I, I know that role. That role's, uh, that role's a little bit easier than this one. <laughs> And, and that role is fun. I go there, I hang out, I leave whenever I want. I, I turn my phone off at night, I go to sleep, so life is good over here. <laughs> exactly. Now, Will, I'll tell you, right before we talk about the book, and I really, I loved it, I, uh, I went on your website, and you had an amazing article, Iraq or the mm. Mets, what's the difference? Are you that big of a Mets fan? Yes, I am. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that you uh, you took a look at that and, and you enjoyed it. Um, and like I mentioned in the article, um, I was over in Iraq in 2006 when the Mets were uh, in their uh, postseason run. Uh, and I was watching the uh, series against the Cardinals, uh, which was ultimately heartbreaking for uh, for Mets fans. Uh, everywhere, but uh, but yeah, I'm a big Mets fan, and uh, uh, I still am, despite the fact that it seems as if there's just as much uh, heartbreak as there is uh, joy in the lives of uh, Mets fans. Unfortunately, it never ends. From Conforto to now, Cespedes getting hurt, the pitching staff. <laughs> how do you do? And no, I'm serious. How do you do it? I'm always, I'm shocked by the Mets fan. You guys are loyal as fuck, and you guys can't catch a break. It, it's every single year. Yeah, it's it's it must be just kind of a unique form of of masochism. I honestly can't explain it. Um, uh, you know, some years are obviously more satisfying than others. I always kind of like the teams that overachieve rather than underachieve. So the teams, you know, in the late '90s, early 2000s, that's kind of when I really started getting into it. Um, and with Bobby Valentine, and those teams were a lot of fun. They were scrappy. They they kind of did better than they were expected to do. And then. You get into the, uh, you know, like 2005, six, seven, when they were really good and they kind of underperformed with a with a huge payroll, and those were the ones that I think were the most frustrating, just because you know you're thinking to yourself they really should be doing better than than they are. Now you got Mr. Met giving the finger, grabbing his crotch. You guys. Just, you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know what it is. I mean, I, you got to kind of question the the training staff maybe or something. But I've never seen a team, probably in any professional sport, that has sent this many guys to the disabled list year after year after year. I, I love it. But listen, like so many others, nine eleven changed everything. I was reading about you. You quit your job in New York City, joined the military. Why do you regret it? And how that whole thing transpired? Like, what motivated you besides? United States getting attacked. Yeah, well, I mean that 
essentially was it. Um, I was working in finance um, in Manhattan, um, you know, and like every New Yorker, you know, I'll never forget that day. Um, I was working in, I think at the time it was the third highest uh, office building in, in Manhattan. And so, you know, we evacuated because at the time they didn't know how many more planes were in the air and, and if our building was, was potentially another target. And, um, you know, honestly, from, you know, in the in the week after the attack and, and witnessing the aftermath and how the city kind of came together, um, you know, for me, it was as much sort of being inspired by the, the selfless service that I witnessed from the police department, the fire department, um, and everyone who kind of rallied together in those days as it was, you know, a desire for revenge and to, and to go to war and, you know, fight back at, at the bad guys who did it. I mean, that, that was an element of it. But I think more than that was just it opened my eyes up to the value of, of service. And it kind of made the job that I was doing at the time seem, you know, a little bit less fulfilling, you know, kind of in light of everything else that was going on in the city and in the world. So now was that Piazza home run? Was that like extra special for you? Because it's one of the most dramatic home runs I've ever seen in my life. Coupled that with 9-11, yeah. you're a Mets fan. Was that like the most special Mets moment for you? Yeah, no, I mean, that was remarkable. I, I you know, I find myself going back to the, the YouTube video of that every once in a while. And, you know, even now I kind of get chills, uh, you know, watching that. And then, of course, you know, I think you're you're a Yankee fan, and, and that was the year that, uh, you know, they made it into the postseason. And, and, you know, I'll never forget President, you know, Bush when he threw that first pitch strike. You know, I mean, that was another one of those moments where, you know, it was kind of greater than, than sports. It was something kind of magical. Um, so, no, I'll never forget, uh, you know, those months in the immediate, uh, you know, aftermath of the attack. Now, let's get to the book, because I love having authors on my show. Like, I have authors, celebrities, athletes, and I'm always curious on how authors, you know, choose their subjects, how, why, and this. How do you come across the material from the soldiers? How do you get provided details? Because your book are the 12 guards who guarded Saddam Hussein. How did you even come across this topic, idea, and all that mm -hmm. stuff? Sure, sure. So I was working, uh, after I got out of the military, I uh, spent a little bit of time working in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. And while I was there, I was assisting a, a New York Times reporter on his uh, book that he was working on at the time on the Iraq War. And in the process of doing that research, he gave me you know, maybe like 100 uh, interviews that the Army had conducted with all kinds of people that were involved in different historical episodes. And I listened to them, and most of them you know, weren't particularly noteworthy, but I came across these uh, 12 interviews that were done with the soldiers who guarded Saddam, and they just blew me away. Um, you know, at the time, unfortunately, I didn't have the luxury of being able to step back and write a book. I had debt from graduate school, um, and uh, I had never written a book. Uh, so it was just something that was kind of abstract. But in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, you know, this is a story that absolutely needs to be told. And, and what really struck me about the interviews uh, were the fact that, you know, first of all, it was just the age of these guys. You know, these were just young soldiers, some of whom had just gotten out of basic training. They weren't special operations guys. They weren't CIA, you know, operatives. Um, and then secondly, it was the intimacy of their interactions with him. Um, I mean, they had to be essentially within lunging distance of him at all times, 24-7. And so it was kind of inevitable that over the time that they spent with him, they would get to know each other. And Saddam actually could speak uh, passable English, and, and they got to, to talking, and one thing kind of led to another until they had developed these very sort of improbable uh, relationships. And then finally, it was just the impact that this experience 
had on the soldiers and 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 what they felt uh, ultimately when they had to hand him over to be executed was something that I think I never would have expected. So there was a lot to it. Um, and of course, after you know, I did, did decide to write the book. I had to track as many of them down as I could and convince them to to speak with me, uh, which which wasn't easy. But the fact that I was also a veteran, I think, helped to to bridge that divide. You know, a little more than if I had just been kind of a conventional journalist. And that was my first shock in the book because I actually had Rob O'Neill on. He came on my show a few times, mm. and you know he talks about the special forces, the operator, and now I'm thinking the elite of the elite is going to be guarding mm-hmm. him. And you're like, no, there's young kids. And the thing that was surprising to me, Will, is that they really didn't like the mission. They were like, oh, this is kind of sucky. This is boring. Did they not yeah. understand the um, significance of it, or they didn't? You know, they want to go there. You know, they're young kids. They want to go to war. Correct. Yeah, I mean that's it. I mean I think you know, for me and and maybe for, you know, guys who are a little bit older or come from different backgrounds, you know, you think to yourself, my goodness, you know, you're, you're going to have the opportunity to be sitting across from the most wanted dictator in the, you know, in 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 the last you know however many years, that's pretty remarkable. But but these guys, you know, most of them, a lot of them had actually joined up, you know, right after 9/11, and and they were trained to go to combat and that's kind of what they wanted to do and they actually did you know do some of that uh in the course of their deployment both before and after this particular mission but yeah the idea that they were now going to be kind of stuck you know on this island prison uh with with this old man that was something that actually didn't really appeal to them at first to the extent that that you might have expected that it would how long did you sit on this um information because now I'm an anxious dude if I like you hear about this book, I'd be so nervous someone else was going to take this idea. How long and was it festering inside mm. you? Like shit, I got to write this book before someone else jumps on this. Yeah, I mean it was it was probably close to you know ten, not ten years, maybe like eight oh or nine God. years, you know, from from when I came across these these interviews to when I actually initiated the project and uh, and you know like I said it was always in the back of my mind and I did have that fear you know I was thinking to myself that this is a story that needs to be told and if I don't tell it you know who knows you know who else might um but you know I, I like I said I had debt I had to get a job I went to work at the Pentagon actually uh for 4 years um and I enjoyed it and and I, I liked what I was doing but but ultimately I, I concluded you know what I got to pull the trigger and, and do this uh, if I don't do it now it, you know I, I'm I'm probably never going to do it now as I'm reading this book it wasn't what I, what I expected. I kind of figured it was going to be like most books are. Like the first half was going to be basically biography on Saddam Hussein and the terror he brought and gruesome details. And the second half would have been on like guarding him. But it was kind of like a psychological book. It was really refreshing. Mm-hmm. Was that your goal, like not to just talk about Saddam? Because I was thinking totally different. Like, okay, it's going to start off. Saddam was born here. He killed here. And yet it turned out to be like a psychological book. These guys consider mm-hmm. him like a grandfather type. Was that your goal? Yeah. I mean, it, it, at no point was it intended to be a, a you know a biography of, of Saddam. Um, it, for, for one reason, I mean, there were plenty of those out there already. Secondly, I just didn't think there was a huge appetite for, for that story. Um, and that wasn't really the story. Um, uh, you know, what, what I think this was, which you accurately described it as, is, is kind of a psychological exploration of uh, what happened between these soldiers and, and this dictator. And, you know, one of the themes that I think comes out is how, you know, being responsible for the death of someone that you've kind of grown to know as a human being, someone you've, you know, watched bathe and sleep and eat and pray and, and talk to every day is a lot different than kind of shooting at, you know, an anonymous target from 200 meters, um, 
Uh, not that that's easy, but but that the experience that these guys had was was considerably different from that. And and then you know you also touched on sort of the chronology, which. Uh, was tough, but but I did try to kind of tell the story, but at the same time have enough flashbacks to episodes earlier in Saddam's life, so that I could accurately depict how uh, you know the terrible things that he had done. Because the book was not, it was never designed to to rehabilitate his his image. I was never trying to suggest that he wasn't guilty of all the things he was guilty of. I was just trying to show another side to his very complicated personality. Now, you described, like, two very intimate moments that I thought was, like, incredible between Saddam and the guards. The first mm-hmm. one was that he rose and stood up every time they walked into his mm-hmm. cell. And I, that part gave me, like, chills. And the other one is when he gave his watch to one of the guards before he was mm-hmm. executed. Like, dude, those are really chilling moments. Like, you have a dictator here who <laughs> is on TV yelling, he, he hates America and death, death to America, yet... A soldier comes in, he stands to it, he stands up. Was that, like, weird when the soldiers were telling you this? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, that was very striking. Um, and, you know, one of the things that came across in the in the book is that he did have a, a tremendous uh, charisma. And, and so even though uh, he had lost everything and, he, you know, he had gone from having 30 palaces, you know, strewn across the countryside and, and every kind of creature comfort imaginable, and now he was just in this small concrete cell – he still kind of carried himself with the the aura of of a leader and um and and it, it was convincing um and 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 so that was something that was really striking to just about everyone who came into contact with him was the fact that uh that he did have this 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 charisma and this charm um which i think helped to explain how he got to where he was and how he maintained power for as long as he did i mean he obviously used violence um without any hesitation and that explains a lot of it but there was another side to him that also i think explains his longevity and you know we look at what happened what's happened in iraq in the last you know 10 or so years after the invasion and it it's becoming very obvious that that's not a easy country to to sort of hold together and he managed to do it for about 30 years um, and, and, and part of it was, was this, these personality attributes that he possessed. Well, you know what? Let's jump to that right now because I don't know if it was in before the book or after the book. You said, like, Saddam's death was supposed to usher in a new era in Iraq. It was going to change everything. And that, you said it didn't last five minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, was, did that, that doesn't surprise anybody. But, like, we went in there and, oh, we're going to kill Saddam Hussein. It really didn't do anything besides... It's kind of like when they killed Pablo Escobar, you killed the head figure, but nothing really changed. Is that right, or am I off on that? No, I mean, I think, sadly, you're, you're kind of right. Um, I mean, essentially, we just destabilized the region and, and turned it into a vacuum where, you know, some equally bad, if not worse, people in the, in the, in the you know, as far as ISIS and, and al-Qaeda in Iraq before that, um, you know, kind of stepped into the void. Um and and yes, I mean the, the aftermath of the execution. That that's what I think some of these soldiers found particularly troubling because they were hoping that this was kind of going to be a step in a, in a positive direction and that it would have been handled professionally by the Iraqis. And unfortunately, the Iraqis kind of made a, a mess of the execution itself. And and it, within five minutes after it, they were kind of desecrating the body and 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 there were sectarian celebrations. And I think it became clear to these soldiers that. Um, that uh, unfortunately, um, you know, what they had hoped would have, like you said, been a step in, in a positive direction for the country really was probably going to have actually triggered the opposite. 
And there's one character in the book that stuck out to me, and I'm pretty sure he's kind of the one you spoke about the most, was Doc Ellis. Can you talk mm-hmm. about him and his relationship with Saddam? Because so many things, dude, it's weird. You, you did something that, I don't know if it was possible, you humanized Saddam Hussein. So can you tell the story about Doc Ellis and about the brother part? I don't want to give it away because I want you to tell it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. Well, Doc Ellis was, was, a, was a particularly fascinating character. He... He was actually a little older than a lot of these other soldiers that were responsible for guarding Saddam, and he had grown up in a very violent uh, housing project in uh, St. Louis, uh, and and his entire childhood had been kind of checkered with exposure to violence, and even you know having participated in some some uh, you know violence himself um, just as a, as an uh, as a result of where he lived. And um, so he wasn't like a naive, wet behind the ears, you know, sort of Ivy League, ivory tower you know, a kid who went overseas kind of uh, predisposed to see the best in people. He was a very worldly, tough guy in his own right. But in the course, and he was the medic assigned to to care for Saddam during a period of, of Saddam's captivity. And in the course of spending time with Saddam, he found himself, kind of despite his his. Uh, his his uh, what he expected or wanted to happen, he found himself actually starting to like the guy, and and that really messed with his head because he thought to himself, how could it possibly be that I'm enjoying this guy's company who's guilty for so much bloodshed? Um, but in any case, um, the word came to Doc Ellis that he had to go home to St. Louis uh, because his brother was about to die from from uh, drug addiction problems that he had been struggling with for a long time. And so he actually made an unscheduled visit to Saddam's cell uh, because he didn't want Saddam to essentially miss him and wonder where he was uh, when he didn't show up for his daily medical checkup, uh, which which is striking enough, uh, the fact that, that he thought to do that. And then when he got there, Saddam kind of listened to the, his explanation and, and what had happened to his brother, um, nodded, and then embraced him and said, uh, you know, don't don't worry. You're losing one brother, but I will always be your brother. <laughs> Which was, I mean, one of those things that you just can't. You can't. I mean, truth is is truly stranger than fiction. You you couldn't make that up. Um, and it was just a, an incredible uh, episode. And it really, I think, raises the, the perhaps one of the biggest questions of the book, which is. You know, to what extent was this behavior from Saddam, this warmth that he displayed towards his captors, one huge, you know, manipulation? Was it just designed to get him better treatment somehow, or was there a genuine human connection that that had developed, or was it a little of each? I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive. It could have it, both things could have been happening at once. And I don't really, I intentionally don't answer that question. I don't try to connect every dot. I kind of tell the story, and then trust the reader to, to draw their own conclusion. And I don't know if you can conclusively uh, argue which one of those explanations is accurate. Um, I think you really can draw a uh, conclusion based on, on your own uh, uh, understanding of what happened. Yeah, I was going to say, I couldn't come to a conclusion. You actually made it very, very complex. At mm-hmm. one point, you, you want to hate him. Listen, we all know what he did, evil man, mm-hmm. but then he's hugging people. You're my brother. You made it. Like, you kind of mind-fucked everybody during it. You, you hate him, hate him, mm-hmm. oh, Saddam. Like, you humanized this monster, which was crazy. Hey, what's been the yeah. reaction by your boys in the military and the soldiers who read it, these guys? What was, your, what was their reaction? Th- their reaction was 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 positive um and and that was actually one of my biggest concerns this was my first book they entrusted me with with a a pretty sensitive story 
Um, and I really did, you know, lose a little bit of sleep at night, um, just wondering to myself, hey, you know, did I get this right? Um, uh, and, 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 and I was, you know, definitely obviously hoping that, that I wouldn't hear back from them and, and, and have them tell me that, that I, you know, bungled something. Um, but no, the, the, the guys that I interviewed and, and worked with, uh, they told me that it was spot on, um, that it captured the essence of, of their experience accurately. Um, and so that was, you know, tremendously gratifying. I, I said to him, I said, that, that's better news to me than if this got, uh, you know, the best review possible in the New York Times, because at the end of the day, this is their story. Um, and and it, it was just my uh, work uh, to, to try to capture it as accurately as I could. But they're the ones that actually lived through this and experienced this. Now, how are the soldiers doing today? Like, obviously, we all know the horrors of coming back from war are, and they had a different mission. They watched, they watched Saddam Hussein, and then they got thrust into basically regular battle, which is, I don't know how you can turn the switch on like that. How are they doing today? Um, I mean, I think they've come out of it in different ways. Um, I mean, one thing that, even though there were commonalities to their experience, I mean, they all did emerge from it differently, and and it did have a different kind of an impact on on different soldiers. Um, And I didn't... uh, get to interview all of them. So, um, you know, I can't speak for them uh, uniformly as having kind of one common uh, response. But, you know, I can say that of the guys that I did focus on, um, it's been tough. I mean, it's it's been real tough um, uh, for reasons that I think would be obvious, but, but other reasons that are less obvious. And, and I think one of them is the fact that, um, you know, every soldier coming back, I think, to some extent, has a little bit of difficulty explaining what they went through and what they experienced to people who haven't gone through that experience. But that challenge is compounded when you think about the fact that these guys, uh, I mean, just imagine them walking into a bar and, and the subject of their deployment comes up. Um, and assuming the person's interested and the person's listening, you know, uh, the subject comes up, you know, well, what did you do? And they explain, you know, I was responsible for guarding Saddam. And I'm really struggling with with it because, you know, I developed this kind of a relationship. I mean, most 99% of Americans are going to scratch their head and be like, wait a second, this is the worst man on the planet. You played a role in bringing him to justice. Um, You know, that's a good thing. You know, why are you having such a hard time with this? So on the one hand, you know, you have your your Navy SEALs like you you had on recently, um, you know, who took part in the bin Laden mission. And I think that one is a lot easier to explain explain to Americans. They come home, they can say, listen, we, we killed the worst guy there is successfully. It was a successful mission, and, and here we are. That's kind of easier to explain than, you know, we helped kill this dictator, but, but you know, it, it wasn't as uh, pleasant of an experience as, as maybe Americans would like to believe it would be. Now, the, the part when you said it was his death day, they were walking him to his death, did they all feel the same universal thing? Like, listen, no one's sad, but like you just said, they all had a – they were all emotional about it, and they all the, – all the ones you interviewed, they all felt the same way, Correct. Like this, not that it's yeah, so I, it's such a double-edged yeah, sword to even describe it. Yeah, no, I, I think that the fairest characterization would be that no one was celebrating, and the degree to which some of them were upset by it varied, you know, depending on the soldier. But but it was not a triumphant, you know, we got him, this is fantastic, you know, rah rah moment. It was somber. 
um, and, uh, and and you know some of them were more moved than some of the others um, because again they they knew on an intellectual level that this guy had been guilty of crimes against humanity but they had never seen that you know and so it's a lot different to know something based on what you you know you may have read in a book or seen on the news versus what you've actually seen with your own two eyes and the only thing that they witnessed was kind of a vulnerable nice older man uh, who always treated them very well uh, and who did possess this 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 charm so it that that was i think at the root of of why they had as hard a time as they did uh delivering him to be killed i don't think any of them even questioned that he deserved to be killed um but it was it was just that relationship that had developed that kind of complicated it and then the aftermath of the execution when things started to really go to hell um that was kind of what 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 was particularly hard for some of them to to accept so your book and it was ironic that Saddam Hussein was held prisoner in one of his own palaces while mm-hmm. doing your research, you're doing your research on the book, was there one thing that really stood out and shocked you? I know that's a generic question, but I'm, I'm always curious what authors like, like your one holy shit moment in doing research on the book. Yeah, I mean, I think you probably, I mean, I think just the entire story was, was shocking. I mean, in that just the, the very concept that these American soldiers, um, uh, essentially were responsible for this guy who was considered, you know, the, the devil incarnate, you know, Hannibal Lecter kind of personified, and then they find themselves growing to like him. So, you know, that was shocking enough. As far as particular episodes that were shocking, I think you, you identified two of them already. One was the, the fact that, that Doc Ellis, that he, he stood up and hugged Ellis and said, I'll be your brother, uh, and then the watch. Um, you know, here he is knowing that he's going to be executed within within an hour or two, um, and he takes a moment to hand over his watch to one of to one of the enemies, you know, one of the guys who's going to be involved in the execution. Um, I mean, I thought that that was was remarkable, um, and and uh, and something, yeah, that you know, you, you, again, it's not something you if you made that up and put it in a novel, people wouldn't believe it. I have one personal question that I'm curious about. So these soldiers who guarded him, the Super 12, they were younger guys. And mm-hmm. not that they were manipulated at all, but, you know, they might have saw more compassion in older men. Do you think maybe a more veteran soldiers, if you have maybe the special forces or guys who had five, ten years, you know, serving this country, do you think if they were guarding Saddam, and I know it's a tough question, do you think they wouldn't have mm-hmm. even sat outside and had tea with him? Do you think they would have not treated him badly? We wouldn't do that, but, like, maybe not even – have been open to even talking to this older guy that would have so much mm-hmm. hatred for them. What do you think on that? I mean, that again, that, that gets right at one of the central issues of the book, too, and, and that's been a question that, that a lot of people have had, and, and a lot of people uh, who are less thoughtful and, 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 and you know, would, would immediately just say, well, that wouldn't, that, you know, I never would have had, this never would have happened to me, or if they sent in someone who was more well-trained, that would never happen. Um, I don't happen to subscribe to that uh, for a few reasons. One is that uh, his one of his FBI interrogators was very well trained, um, and you could make the argument that he, to some extent, succumbed to this charm, you know, every bit as much as these young guys did. Uh, secondly, and probably, you know, even more uh, a more convincing argument against that contention would be the fact that Saddam's own. Uh, there's a chapter in the book where uh, his son-in-law and their families had defected to Jordan, and um, 
after spending a few months essentially in exile in Jordan, the son-in-law decided, and that the son-in-law had been the, uh, in charge of Saddam's uh, weapons of mass destruction program, and he decided he wanted to go back to Iraq. Everyone in Jordan told him, if you go back, you're a dead man. You know, Saddam is a murderous tyrant. You betrayed him. He knows you betrayed him. He knows you've been in Jordan talking to American intelligence uh, agencies. You, you won't make it a week. Well, he still went, and he knew Saddam better than anyone. I mean, he was married to Saddam's daughter and had worked in Saddam's government. And he went back, and sure enough, he was killed <laughs> within like two or three days. So everyone that told him, everyone that told him that you're, you know, you're marching back to your death, they were right, and he was wrong. But he was still convinced by Saddam that this was, you know, that that, that he'd be okay. Um, so I think that again speaks to this this charm. Uh, that he possessed that that uh, that that is important to recognize, and that I think makes it clear that it wasn't just the case that these were just some young young naive soldiers that didn't know better, because there were plenty of people who should have known better, um, who who were also taken in by Saddam. Um, and I'm not saying that that this was just one manipulation, but but I'm saying that 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 Saddam could have this kind of an impact on people that knew a lot uh, more than maybe some of these young guys had known going into this. You mentioned in the beginning, this is your first book. Are you a one-and-done guy, mm -hmm. or are you going to write another book? Are you in the process of writing another book? Any topics that really stick out to you that you want to write about? Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm uh, hopefully not one-and-done. Um, I'm, I'm, wor I'm working on developing some ideas with my editor um, uh, as we speak. Uh, I just sent him a, an email a few days ago, and we've been going back and forth on, on what project to pursue. Um, we haven't uh, agreed on one quite yet uh, because, you know, as I've learned during this book, which took over two years, it's a pretty massive uh, commitment. And so before you start it, you want to make sure it's something that you're fully uh, committed to. The worst-case scenario is you get six months into a project and you, you conclude that either you're not that interested or there's not the, the material is just not what you thought it would be. Um, so it's a pretty important uh, – it's probably the most important decision. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of where we're at now. Now I hope in the next uh, few months here to, to, to identify one that we're equally enthusiastic about and to, to move forward from there. Well, listen, man, your book, The Prisoner in His Palace, Saddam Hussein, His American Guards, and What History Left Unsaid, I loved it. I actually had a party at my house Saturday night. This <laughs> dude was looking on the bookshelf. No, I'm serious. I let him borrow it because I thought it was one of the best books I read all year, and I'm trying to read a book a week, and I just I thought yeah. it was awesome, man. So, listen, here's well, the thank deal, you. though. Thank you. You're yeah. in New York. Yeah, you're a New York guy, so when you get to New York, for real, though, we're gonna, we'll, we'll link up, we'll go to Jack Dempsey's or McSorley's, wherever you decide, and we'll, uh, we'll drown your sorrows of, of the mess. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, that was my, one, my only regret about the podcast was that I couldn't join you at uh, Dempsey's, so I'll have to take you up on that offer next time I'm in the city. Listen, thank you for your service, and congratulations on being a father, my friend. Thank you very much, and I appreciate your time and, and your uh, help spreading the word. I'll spread it out, man. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Have a good day, man. Yeah. Will Bodner Warper, like I said, the book, tremendous book. It, it is a psychological book. You're reading the book, and I know me personally, I forgot how this topic even came up about Saddam Hussein. I'm like, what? I haven't read a book on him. I Googled it, and this book just, it was different. I want to hear it from both sides. The guys who guarded him right the days before he died and the day he died. And we touched on a few subjects, the watch, him hugging Doc Ellis, telling him, you're my brother. Was he mind-fucking them or 
was he just an older guy who had to have the persona of a monster? Obviously, he's a piece of garbage. He's one of the worst people who've ever lived, but Will humanized him, and it was great. Um, like I said, everyone should buy the book. If you buy the book, go to his website, tell him that you uh, heard his interview on my show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, even if you don't like the podcast, just subscribe to it so I feel really cool and really popular. It can be found on any podcast app by searching Mike Sappho, M-I-K-E-S-A-F-O. And if you listen to this on Monday night, on Thursday, live from Jack Dempsey's, we have Jackie Martling, Liz Melee, and Larry McShane from the Daily News. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Have a good night.